According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. And therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. Join me once again as we get started here in the book of Hebrews, Hebrews 13. The final chapter to the book of Hebrews. Remember those who led you, this is Hebrews thirteen seven says, remember those who led you, who spoke the word of God to you, and considering the result of their conduct, imitate their faith. Jesus Christ, the same yesterday and today and forever, do not be carried away by varied and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods, through which those who were so occupied were not benefited. But we have an altar from which those who serve the tabernacle have no right to eat. I'm going to stop the reading there. This is about as far as we're going to get here today. But this is what we have to look forward to between today and next week. Uh, Kind of a nice uh, message for our communion Sunday, in fact, next week. That uh, we do have an altar. And this is what we eat from, as it were. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy place by the high priest as an offering for sin are burned outside the camp. Therefore, Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people through his own blood, suffered outside the gate. So let us go out to him outside the camp, bearing his reproach. So there's some things coming up here that we want to understand what the author is doing. He's adapting some things in a a curious way, but uh, he's making the point very clear that we can uh, can make the application we have in the church age, being the Melchizedek believer priest that we are, not uh, trying to return back to any kind of Old Testament Levitical approach. Because those guys, they don't have a spot at the table that we eat from. This is our position in Christ, and this is what we're going to celebrate here today. Before we do begin our study, however, let's take a moment for silent prayer, remembering that God is spirit. He must be worshipped in spirit and in truth. Let's humble ourselves before him for his faithful instruction. Shall we pray? Almighty Father, we do come before you once again, thankful for your faithfulness. Rejoicing, Father, no matter how deep things get, no matter what passage we're looking at, your Holy Spirit indwells each one of us. And he leads us in the truth, even the deep things of God. And I thank you, Father, for the privilege we have in the church age to stand before you, for the position that we have in Christ. Father, all these blessings that we've been studying in Colossians and in Hebrews, here we are once again, Father, to feast upon your truth. I ask, Father, that you open our eyes, open our ears, and soften our hearts. Bless us and prepare us this day for the truth that you have provided. We thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, and so really, I think, um, as long as we understand the bridge for what it is, verse 8, and we dealt with that last week in looking at the yesterday and the today on the one hand, and then the forever on the other hand. It's not really three separate parts because the yesterday and today are connected, and then the forever is what comes after that. And really, it's, uh, it comes as the application to verse 7, remembering those who led you. That's the yesterday. And then the today is you guys, is, is the present generation 
the generation that's being ordered to not be carried away by varied and strange teachings. And so the, uh, the application gets quite uh, vivid, and, and it's a blessing for us to know that the same Jesus Christ, who's head of the church, was head of the church when the previous generation was walking in the light. He's head of the church now as we are walking in the light. He's going to keep being head of the church with each generation that follows after us, and, uh, and it doesn't stop. Even when the church stops, he remains head of the church. And so when the trumpet sounds and the church age is concluded and the bride is complete, Jesus continues to be the head of the church yesterday, today, and forever. So we can appreciate that. All right, so now looking forward then, what are we doing in the here and now? We need to stay faithful and not be carried away. And what we're going to deal with here today is the carrying away. I'll advance my slide to where we are, Hebrews 13, 9. And I think, yes, I can't tell you. The, what we dealt with, as we are running out of time last week, talking about this forever. I can't stress this enough. The apostle and the high priest of our confession. It is an eternal confession. It is never growing obsolete. It is never growing old. It is never ready to disappear. The fact is, our priesthood in Christ is eternal. He holds his priesthood eternally. Say what you will about the contrast between what Aaron had and what Jesus has. Aaron's is the one that's obsolete, growing old, ready to disappear, not Jesus. The priesthood of Jesus Christ abides forever. We have an eternal confession. Every generation of the church will be united by resurrection and rapture for our eternal glory with Jesus Christ. Just color me simple, but when I read 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, and when it says, so we shall always be with the Lord, I take that to mean we shall always be with the Lord. That that is our promise, that that is our eternal destiny, that the bride of Christ is collected in the rapture, and we shall always be with the Lord. And so you may have other questions pertaining to, well, what comes after the rapture? And we study the tribulation, and we study the judgment seat, and we study the the second advent, and we study Armageddon, and we study the wilderness generation of Israel. We study the sheep and goat judgment in Jerusalem. We study the millennial kingdom. We study the end of the millennial kingdom with the Gog-Magog rebellion. We study the destruction of the present heavens and earth by fire. We study the great white throne judgment. We study the new heavens and the new earth. And in all of these things as we study, where are we? With the Lord. Amen. Thank you for that. All right. So that, uh, if, if, if it seems complicated to cycle through all the things to come, just the one simple thing we can always hold on to is that where the Lord is, there we are. That we are the bride and we are always with the Lord. And so that is a tremendous encouragement and really gives the full value to yesterday and today the same and also forever, Jesus Christ our Lord. All right, now this takes us to verse 9. Do not be carried away. Stop being carried away. Don't, Don't fall for it even once. Do not be carried away by varied and strange teachings. Let me put my Bible window up here and we'll pick up what we're looking at. I meant to ask in between the two services, is this text size okay? Does it need to be bigger? Is it too small? Just fine. All right. 
Do not be carried away by varied and strange teachings, for it is good. This is a good statement. It is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods. Don't confuse the issues. It is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods, through which those who were so occupied were not benefited. We've seen time and time again throughout this book, each chapter where the warnings are given, where the temptation is to fall away. The author of Hebrews is urging his readers not to fall away. And what they were looking to return to was the old priesthood that they had before they named the name of Christ. That the majority of the recipients of this epistle were themselves former Levitical priests and on the verge of returning back to a Levitical priesthood. And so this is yet an additional point of evidence in the overall understanding of the epistle. But once again, he's talking about those guys. And those guys aren't you guys, okay? Those guys are preoccupied with the foods and the washings and the, and the ritual and all the detail that goes with it. Those who were so uh, preoccupied. And, and they were not edified. They were not strengthened. It doesn't provide the grace. Sure, food provides the earthly sustenance, but we, we live in the age of grace, and we need to have the spiritual reality, not the shadows, for uh, the sustaining of our priesthood. And so this is what we're going to be looking at here in, uh, in this. And connected with that is we have an altar. We have an altar from which those who serve the tabernacle have no right to eat. And when you think about certain tables and certain places, uh, theirs was an exclusive priesthood, that they had a table and they had an altar and they had showbread and they had other things that the, the typical Jewish person had no access to. In fact, no Gentile had access to. Only the priests and the Levites had access to the, to the loaves, for example, or to the meat. We're going to see some of, the, uh, some of the Levitical procedures here today that was connected to that. And so they had a priesthood which excluded others from partaking. And if that by analogy makes sense to you, then the rest of this gets easy. Because we have a priesthood which by its very nature excludes others from partaking. That until you are a believer priest in Christ, you can't eat at this table. But once you are a believer priest in Christ, man, pull up a chair, let's eat. This is what it's about. Everyone is invited. We have the priesthood of the saints, every believer in the church age. We're not, uh, we've been reading this in church history, there'll be more coming up. Uh, when they put a, a wedge between clergy and laity and they created an artificial priesthood that, uh, that had special perks and privileges that not every believer was enjoying through the Middle Ages and on up to the Reformation. And one of the great blessings of the Reformation was the reminder that, wait a minute, we're all believer priests in Christ. And I don't need this intermediary priest to confess my sins to because I go straight to, to the Father in prayer. So uh, it's kind of neat that we get to approach a verse like this uh, during such time as we're going through the church history class that we are. Now the early church faced real questions related to circumcision. We saw that last hour. They also faced real questions related to food in adjusting to the new dispensation of grace. And you would think that if the early church wrestled with it, then by the time these guys are receiving the epistle that they're receiving, you would think that it would be a settled issue. And yet we find clearly that it's not. 
because they have this temptation to uh, abandon grace and return back to their priesthood and, and, uh, and so forth. Last hour, we actually spent some time talking about circumcision and dealing with it from the, the context of Colossians chapter 2, that we do have a circumcision we receive in the church age that's a spiritual circumcision made without hands. And we'll be dealing more with that here come up, coming up on Wednesday night. But uh, leaving the circumcision question uh, aside for now, we have the food question. And uh, Acts not, uh, 10 is a good place to turn for this. Acts chapter 10 in verses 9 through 16, in case you're not familiar with it. This is the, um, the Cornelius chapter, so it's kind of unfortunate we don't have Cornelius with us today. But this is his chapter in, uh, in the book of Acts. And um, Acts 10, 9 says, On the next day as they were on their way, these are people that uh, Cornelius is sending to fetch Peter and bring Peter back so Peter can give them the teaching they need. But on the next day, as they were on their way and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. Now, I am typically very uh, hostile to uh, walking around on the roof. That's, uh, I, I just see again and again and again uh, from King David, uh, it gets you in trouble. And he saw Bathsheba down there bathing, or Nebuchadnezzar gets up there on his roof and he starts getting full of pride and, and everything, and then he has to eat grass like an animal for seven years. And there are many other stories in the Bible where being up on the roof causes trouble. And I, my general recommendation is stay off the roof and, and you stay out of trouble. On this occasion, though, this may appear to be more of the exception to the rule because uh, Peter's up there praying. And this is where he's going to receive a vision that's going to prepare him for the arrival of these servants from Cornelius. And... Uh, he became hungry as he's up there praying and became hungry, was desiring to eat. But while they were making preparations, he fell into a trance. So this is more than just your typical prayer life. This is God taking hold and giving a divine revelation to Peter in this prayer exercise. And so he saw the sky open up and an object like a great sheet coming down, lowered by four corners to the ground. And there were in it all kinds of four-footed animals and crawling creatures of the earth and birds of the air. We don't actually have specificity exactly as to which of these animals they might have been, but we do know that they were unclean because of Peter's reaction and his desire not to eat them. And so a voice came to him, Get up, Peter, kill and eat. Kill and eat. But Peter said, By no means, Lord. Now, I don't know about you, but I, this, this seems almost worse than the, the three denials on the night in which Jesus was betrayed. Because, I mean, at least there was, you know, the threat of the sword and fear of the Romans and all kinds of other concerns. And it was, you know, this seems a lot safer and a lot more clear-cut. And God is sending you a vision and God is giving you a command. And honestly, of all the commands of God, this is pretty easy you know, eat, kill and eat. And, but Peter still says, no, by no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything unholy and unclean. Now we can give Peter some kind of slack. I mean, beyond the fact that he's arguing with God, that's not good. I mean, do what you're told. God tells you to do it, you know, do it. If you happen to have an objection, if, and if this is a legitimate objection saying, Lord, uh, you know, 
some of these food items are not on the approved list. I've got Leviticus still going on with clean and unclean animals. But notice, a voice came to him a second time. What God has cleansed no longer consider unholy. Now this is a change. This is an adaptation. This is an explicit statement of Scripture. And I want to bless you today with more than just a couple of things connected to this beyond what Hebrews 13 is dealing with. All right, But the dietary restrictions within Leviticus have been abrogated by God Himself in divine revelation. Are we clear with that? The same God that banned pork chops in the Old Testament now says, hey, bacon is great, enjoy, in the New Testament. See, and thank God I'm a New Testament believer, not an Old Testament believer related to pork, related to bacon and and all that other good stuff. Okay, now... Because, because he's doing this not arbitrarily, not without any purpose or for no reason whatsoever. He wasn't being mean to the Jews and nice to the Christians. Okay? There's a theological reality being communicated. And Israel in their priesthood, Israel in their stewardship had particular external dietary restrictions and clothing restrictions and other things that were a part of them being set apart as different from the Gentile nations around them. And that external shadow was to teach a principle. But now in Christ, we have realities in the church age whereby we don't need those tutors anymore. In fact, the tutors have done their job. They've led to Christ. And now we walk in the reality. And so we have, is is, is it better? Of course it's better. Is it greater? Of course. Beyond the fact that it does include bacon, it's the reality beyond the shadows that you and I function in the realities, okay? Now, you say, well, that's pretty easy to figure out. Why did Peter have such a hard time with it? (laughs) Well, this happened three times, and immediately the object was taken up to the sky. Three times. And and it doesn't really say that Peter objected all three times, but um, it kind of indicates, doesn't it, that... uh, I don't know, there's a lot that Peter did in threes from the denials to the yes, I love yous and and other things. Anyway, then while Peter was greatly perplexed in mind so as to what the vision which he had seen might be, behold, the men who had been sent by Cornelius having asked directions for Simon's house appeared at the gate. Okay? But perfect timing. Perfect timing. And because Peter was running a little late because he took three times to be told what to do. Um, So God had a handle on that too and said, all right, I'll slow these guys down a little bit. We'll get them to start asking for directions, which men never do. But he had these guys asking for directions. The point being is that everything is coordinated perfectly. So when the the picnic uh, blanket goes back to heaven, and now Peter's perplexed looking around like, well, what was that about? Here come these people to the door. And now he can proceed from there. Anyway, this is a food issue. And this is, uh, this is something that they had to wrestle through in that. And like I say, the circumcision was the other issue. And they had to work their way through that as well. Uh, let's also look at 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 25 and following. I think in connection with this. 
Again, it's an explicit statement that's given by the revelation of God. Yeah, there's a lot of context in this. If I just pick up with verse 23, it says, All things are lawful, but not all things are profitable. All things are lawful, but not all things edify. We have a new rule of thumb in the church age, and that's mutual edification, one to another. And so long as we're not causing a stumbling block, then we can enjoy the foods, the beverages, the, the activities, whatever that we do in Christian liberty. Let no one seek his own good but that of his neighbor. Eat anything that is sold in the meat market without asking questions for conscience' sake. And so those things that had previously been restricted, those restrictions are gone. We are living in the age of freedom. It's one of the illustrations. And it's a great illustration to show freedom as opposed to restrictions. Grace as opposed to law. A contrast between, well, that was then, this is now. And, uh, and in particular, by the way, it's, it's still useful 21 centuries later. We can still teach this doctrine today. But how much more vivid was it in the first century when you got people like Peter that are still alive and their whole life has been brought up in that other way of existence? It's a tough cultural thing to just let go of all at once. But the earth is the Lord and the fullness thereof. The earth is the Lord's and all it contains. And then it talks about, well, what if somebody makes it an issue? If it becomes a stumbling block kind of a thing, well, then now you've got a different issue. So if one of the unbelievers invites you and you want to go, then go. You've got an evangelism opportunity because an unbeliever invited you over to their house, great. Eat anything that's set before you without asking questions for conscience sake. Don't make an issue out of it. In other words, don't be a jerk with the unbeliever. Be gracious towards them and don't make an issue out of things and just be relaxed. They might be shocked because they expected that you were a Christian goody-two-shoes all uptight and panicky about stuff and you're going to freak out. And, and you don't freak out. And you show some grace and they, they're, they're just amazed sometimes. But if anyone says to you, this is meat sacrifice to idols, in other words, they're, they're twisting it they're, they're trying to get your goat. They're trying to get you to react. Now they're making it an issue that you never made it an issue. Well, now that they've done taking it there, all right, at this point, don't eat it for the sake of the one who informed you and for conscience sake. You just got alerted to the fact that there's other dynamics at work at this point, and you've got, you've got some ministry in front of you at that point. All right, well, it goes on. We've got some more, by the way. There's First Corinthians notebooks that are available on the website and out in the hallway, and there's, there's more that we did with this back in the day in uh, First Corinthians. Now, when you look at these things, by the way, <laughs> as you read through, I don't care if, you, if, if you're reading in, in Acts or you're reading in, in First Corinthians or anywhere else you care to read in the New Testament, you and I are absolutely fine with dietary restrictions being removed because the Scripture removed the dietary restrictions. Did the Scripture revoke all of Leviticus? Is the whole book of Leviticus now null and void? You see, what I'm getting at is, well, what about the, um, the fornication passages? What about uh, homosexuality? What about... Uh, incest? What about bestiality? And some of these things don't have political action committees yet, but some of them do. All right? 
And when you try to speak to them biblically, they, they'll throw the dietary things at you and say, oh, well, you eat shellfish, or oh, you eat pork, or oh, well, you ignore, clearly you ignore Leviticus, so uh, you can't have a problem with homosexual fornication. See what they've done there? Have you encountered this also? So people will try to say, look, Jesus did away with Leviticus, as if, okay, no, he abrogated the dietary restrictions. But fornication is still fornication, always has been, always will be. Why do you think that's, you know, is that legal now? Do you think murder is legal now too, by the way? I mean, I mean, what are we saying here? Anything goes because we're in Christ? Is that, that's not it. Anyway, you may encounter this, and if so, you'll be able to address it. Say, show me where the New Testament abrogates something, and then, and then we'll talk. Show me where the New Testament says uh, adultery is, is, is good to go now. It's all in bounds and everything. No, it's not. All right. Again, the early church faced real questions related to circumcision and food and adjusting to the new dispensation of grace. Judaizers were among the legalists who abused the circumcision question. It's not clear who abused the food issues with their varied and strange teachings. Some of it might have been more Judaistic legalism. It could have been other legalism as well. But we have a glimpse in 1 Timothy chapter 4. So join me there. 1 Timothy 4, verses 3 through 5. It's not likely that this was Jewish because the celibacy thing is not typically a Jewish thing. But whatever the uh, group was, prototype Roman Catholics maybe? <laughs> I don't know. All right, First Timothy chapter 4. The Spirit explicitly says that in later times some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and the doctrines of demons. We're going to be touching on this in Colossians as well because false teachers came in there and were uh, pressing visions they had received, and we're talking about angels and how you need to start worshiping angels. Paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. I tell you, it's not elect angels that are pushing that stuff. It's always the fallen angels that are pushing that stuff. Elect angels know better. It goes on to say, by means of the hypocrisy of liars seared in their own conscience as with a branding iron. Isn't it curious? A lot of times when we talk about damaged goods, we talk about human beings that are so branded, that are so darkened by their sin. A lot of times I think we have other things in mind uh, besides this, hyperlegalism, and um, And yet it's just as branding, it's just as conscience searing. Now I get it if you have, you're talking about a, a psychopath or a sociopath or somebody that's so, their humanity has been so burned out that they can kill without remorse and they can, they can commit violence and, and burn stuff down. And, and you say, do these people even have conscience? Do they have souls anymore? How damaged are they in this activity? That's on the one hand, but this is, uh, this is uh, something else. And it's just as damaging to the conscience. Anyway, just notice uh, the hypocrisy of liars seared in their own conscience as with a branding iron. Men who forbid marriage. 
So forced celibacy and forced singleness, i.e. I. The, the Roman Catholic priesthood, for example. And that's, a, the, that's item number one on this list of four examples that talk about a seared conscience. And advocate abstaining from foods which God has created to be gratefully shared in. And it could be anything. Pick a food. And you'll find champions that will say, don't eat that. Okay? And whether it's, you know, meats or vegetables or, or whatever, you know, it's pretty common these days to be vegan and to, to be critical of meat eaters. Um, but you can go the opposite direction too and, and be a, a vegan vegan or something and say, I never eat vegetables. I only eat the animals that used to eat vegetables. Things like that. The fact is, when you're abstaining from foods which God has created to be gratefully shared in, that the food is for our enjoyment. Isn't God good? You know? We could have been cows. Or he, could have, he could have designed our, our... Why do we have tongues? Why do we have taste buds? Why do we have palates? Why do we taste flavors? You know, we could have just grazed and eaten grass and everything could have tasted the same. You know, giraffes out there eating leaves, chewing on whatever. Do they, are they connoisseurs of the different tree branches? I mean, do things just taste? I mean, do they even appreciate the taste that we do? Where they say, hmm, needs a little more salt. Or we just decide we're going to, you know. <laughs> Part of the blessings we have, the appetites and the tastes in every capacity until you start damaging it through sin. All right, abstaining from foods which God has created to be gratefully shared in by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with gratitude. If you can eat it thankfully, then eat it. For it is sanctified by means of the word of God in prayer. Your orientation to accurate doctrine and your prayerful thanksgiving as you partake for the glory of Jesus Christ. And this is the uh, this is it. This is this was rule number one in my father's house was that we say grace before meals, and there's no criticism that's allowed after we have thanked God for the food, because we sanctified it by means of the Word of God in prayer, and we were thankful for the hands that prepared it. He also thought it was very insulting to my mother if, uh, if us brat, bratty kids would, would said ugly things about my mother's hard work in preparing the meal for us. And so uh, that was another very clear point of, of testimony. That uh, he had mom before he had us, and if one of us had to go, it was going to be us, <laughs> not mom. And uh, he was very clear about that. It was very, very much defended her. But the bigger issue beyond insulting mom was how ungrateful are you to the grace of God and his provision to make this, this meal available for us? So that's what sanctifies it. Now we have a table. We'll talk about that here in a moment. Secondly, though, also in the connection with Hebrews 13.9 here. We have a passage in, 1 Corinthians, in uh, Psalm 104 that actually underlies the expression that's used here when it talks about it is good for the heart to be strengthened. The author of Hebrews is actually adapting the well-known principle that's contained in Psalm 104. 
Psalm 104, verses 14 and 15 is what underlies the point that's being made in Hebrews 13, 9. But the author adapts it so he can bring out a deeper truth, a better truth. That God's grace is the real issue, not the food you're eating to strengthen your body. Let's take a look at Psalm 104, verses 14 and 15. All right, are we getting used to this yet? We've been back in the building. This is our third Sunday back in the building, and I haven't heard paper flipping yet. <laughs> Everyone just watches the screen. Now, I'm sure you're, some of you are out there with real Bibles and flipping pages. I get that. I have terrible hearing, so I don't hear it anyway. So I'm 104. And uh, see, is there a larger context here? God's in charge of the earth, and he, even though it's fallen, he still maintains its basic op- creation operation. All right, verse 14. He causes the grass to grow for the cattle and vegetation for the labor of man, so that he may bring forth food from the earth and wine which makes man's heart glad. Notice that? It's a positive statement for the purpose of wine. It's not, now drunkenness is a sin, but wine in moderation is designed for our blessing. Wine which makes man's heart glad, so that he may make his face glisten with oil, and food which sustains man's heart. So this is the, the, the tandem between the bread and the wine. We're talking earthly food for earthly needs. And it goes on talking about the trees and the birds and other uh, components here in God's created order. But just taking a look at just verses 14 and 15 and locking in, why do we have food? Why do we have wine? Why do we have uh, palates and, and tastes and appetites? Why are these things joys to partake in? Your face can glisten with, uh, with a good meal. Okay? And uh, the oil, he may make his face glisten with oil. And so it's, it's more than just simply a, um, it's more than, uh, it's, it's not an animalistic function. It might be similar to the animals do. I get that. Animals eat, we eat. Um, but uh, animals don't, uh, their hearts aren't made glad. Their face don't glisten. They don't praise God for his faithful provision. The eating event for us is, is not, it's, it's far beyond the animal realm. That's what I'm trying to say. Think about the dining opportunities that we have and the family opportunities that we have. Eating together is always the time of fellowship. That's why he designed it so that when you bring your sacrifices to the Levites, you're going to eat with the Levites, you're going to fellowship with the Levites, they're going to teach you doctrine while you're there. It's a communal gathering. Even in the New Testament times, it's a communal gathering. The disciple whom Jesus loved was reclining on his breast. It's a dining uh, event, a dining venue for these things. And so, yes, we eat, we drink, but we appreciate God's provision and we celebrate what God has provided. I think this is exactly in harmony with what we looked at in 1 Timothy sanctified by means of the word of God with prayer. 
we have the capacity to accept God's provision and we identify it as such. So we have Psalm underlining Hebrews 13, but the truth that Hebrews brings out is that God's grace is the real issue. Again, when we go back to Hebrews 13, there it is. It is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods through which those who were so occupied were not benefited. Don't lose the grace in the food that you're eating. You know, think about it. We even call it grace. We say grace, table grace, when we're sanctifying the meal. So don't lose the grace in the, uh, in the dining event because the grace of God is the real recognition. Give us this day our daily bread. Each day is a testimony that we're one day at a time dependent upon God and His faithful provision. It's all the grace of God. By the grace of God, we are what we are. By the grace of God, we do what we do. Let's look also at Romans 14, 17, connected to this. What do you have in Romans 14? You've got doubtful issues. You've got applications. And different believers are coming to different conclusions pertaining to food, to alcohol, to meat sacrifice, to idols, to other things. Maybe today would include... Uh, you know, drinking and smoking and dancing and, and other things that some believers have hang-ups with and other believers are more relaxed about. And hopefully every believer is bringing the Word of God into focus and making their application, whichever way they, they choose. Let us not judge one another anymore, but rather determine this, not to put an obstacle or a stumbling block in a brother's way. I know and am convinced in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but to him who thinks anything to be unclean, to him it is unclean. And this is true related to food you might eat, drinks you might drink. This is true with respect to uh, activities you may or may not participate in. This is true with respect to all the things. If it's not forbidden in Scripture... In other words, with a thou shalt not, you can't, uh, you can't twist sin and make sin okay by this chapter. That's, that just doesn't work. <laughs> so don't say, hey, I'm okay with murder. No. Sin is still sin. We're talking about the doubtful things that are not clearly sin in Scripture. Then if you have the liberty in Christ to enjoy, enjoy. But to him who thinks it to be unclean, to him it is unclean. If he thinks it's a sin... If he's not fine with it, if he has some real struggles with it, then understand that's your weaker brother and you've got an obligation to love your brother. Don't just throw it in their face and slap them around and say, hey, grow up and get doctrine. Come alongside and love them and, and bless them and understand where they're coming from in their Christian walk. Now, if because of food your brother is hurt, You are no longer walking according to love. Do not destroy with your food him for whom Christ died. Man, read that verse ten times in a row. If because of food, are you kidding me? We're supposed to be building one another up and you're tearing somebody down? Over what? Something stupid like a food item? A drink item? Alcohol? Smoking? I mean, what are we talking about? Well, you know, it's not cigars. It's not cigarettes, it's cigars. That's better. I mean, people come up with all these things, okay? And nowadays, we've got vaping to add to the, to the mix of stuff. All right. Let's understand 
If the scripture doesn't say thou shalt not, then different believers will come to different faith applications. So, do not let what is for you a good thing be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking. You notice that? (laughs) It is not eating and drinking. So while we appreciate Psalm 104 and we appreciate the point of food and we kind of need food if we're going to live biologically, um, you know, some of us have some reserves. We can go a little while. But no, eating is biologically a benefit. Thank you, God, for designing food. But the real issue in our Christian walk to glorify Jesus Christ in the church age, the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Let's have first things first. And the way the author of Hebrews put it, he says, don't lose the grace. Don't lose the grace. Again, Hebrews 13 and verse uh, 9. It is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace. And that's, uh, that's something that never shows up on a USDA in, uh, ingredients label. You know, you're trying to see if it's got soy or if it's got gluten or what else might be included. And you're reading through the ingredients list of the menu item at the store. And no, the grace of God, it's in everything he gives us. We need to identify it for what it is and be thankful in his grace provision. Oh, I did that again. I told myself never to do that again. All right. Let's look at verse 10. We have an altar from which those who serve the tabernacle have no right to eat. We have an altar. Now, what's our altar? Are we talking about the work that Jesus Christ did on the cross? Are we talking about the altar whereby we continuously offer up additional sacrifices on the basis of the once and for all sacrifice? I think that's clearly what we're dealing with here. This whole chapter is about what we're doing today in the here and now. Yesterday, today, and forever. And so I think this, we have an altar, is talking about a church age present reality. What do we do now in the body of Christ? And how do we offer sacrifices? And what do we eat while we're doing so? We have an altar from which those who serve the tabernacle have no right to eat. Those guys. By the way, they still presently serve the tabernacle. This is pre-70 AD. It's not been destroyed yet. But those guys can't eat at our table. They can't eat at our altar. They don't have the perspective that we have with respect to the finished work of Jesus Christ and the access we have before the Father. That he entered within the veil as a forerunner and here we are as a priesthood in Christ standing before the Father. We have an altar. And this altar better be very busy all day, every day. We've got sacrifices to make. We're going to see some of those sacrifices as we As we uh, go forward down to verse 15, you'll notice, through him then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. So this is an altar where the fire better not ever go out. Israel had an altar like that. They couldn't let the fire go out. That's a pattern. We better learn from that pattern. Have we let the fires go out on our altar? Do we find that our our sacrifices are sporadic? They're every now and then when we think about it, but we, don't, we try not to think about them too often. Or are they continuous? Because they're commanded to be continuous. 
So stay tuned. We've got some classes coming up with this. Through Him then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of lips that give thanks to His name. The author of Hebrews is adapting Paul here when Paul says, Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and everything give thanks. Just the author here puts it in a priesthood uh, vocabulary and puts it on an altar. We offer it up as a sacrifice. And do not neglect in doing good and sharing. For with such sacrifices, God is pleased. Understand do-gooderism <laughs> in a sanctified way. We're not legalistic do-gooders. We are Melchizedek priesthood do-gooders. And everything, every good thing we do is because Jesus has done his work on the cross. And in Christ, every good thing we do can be a sweet-smelling savor before the Father. And it's supposed to be. And so this is what we are going to explain when we get to this point and the sacrifices that we offer. So these sacrifices that we offer, they go up to the Father. They're a sweet-smelling savor before the Father that meets cooking on the grill, as sacrifices tend to do. And when the meat's cooking on the grill, sure smells nice. That smoke is going up and it smells great. But then what do we do when the meat is done cooking? We eat. We fellowship together. We're able to nourish one another with these things that we're doing in Christ. And we eat. In the Old Testament, they would offer the animals and then they would eat the animals with the Levites, with the priests. It became a fellowship offering with the offerer and the priesthood together. I'm making myself hungry. <laughs> All right. Under law, priestly and Levitical service provided food benefits. Priestly and Levitical service provided food benefits. They had other benefits as well. But food was... One of the items that's so stipulated here, Leviticus 6.15. Notice we're going back to Leviticus. We haven't thrown Leviticus out of our Bibles. <laughs> it's part of the God-breathed inspired canon. If the dietary restrictions have been abrogated for the church age, it's not as if the entire book is, uh, is undone. There is tremendous value particularly when we were contrasting Aaron with Melchizedek, that priesthood with our priesthood, there's a tremendous value in that. Even just the basic principles of holiness are, are well worth learning in the, in the uh, connection of Leviticus. All right. Leviticus 9, uh, 6.15. How much more of this do I need to read? The garments, the fire shall be kept burning on it. It shall not go out. The priest shall burn wood on it every morning. He shall lay out the burnt offering on it, offer up and smoke the fat portions of the peace offering on it. Fire shall be kept burning continually on the altar. It is not to go out. I can't stress that enough. I think too often believers have a disengaged prayer life and then they're, they're, they decide, oh, I've got to get serious about prayer. They try to ramp it up real quick. And they have no idea even how to get started because they haven't been praying in weeks or months or years. Now, keep the fire always going. Now, this is the law of the grain offering. The sons of Aaron shall present it before the Lord in front of the altar. Then one of them shall lift it up, lift from it a handful of the fine flour of the grain offering with its oil and the incense that is on the grain offering, 
and he shall offer up in smoke on the altar a soothing aroma as a memorial offering to the Lord. Now notice it's just a portion of it. It's a handful of it. What happens to the rest of it? If all you're doing is scooping up a handful and offering it up to the Lord, what about the rest of it that you scooped the handful out of? What is left of it, Aaron and his sons are to eat. It shall be eaten as an unleavened, as unleavened cakes in a holy place. They are to eat it in the court of the tent of meeting. Now, there's some things here that I just wanted us to be thinking about in this week and leading up to next week. You'll notice there's kind of a, a private tucked away kind of thing. Whereas next week we're going to be told, go outside the camp. Okay, so just stay tuned. And we're going to be making some adaptations when we get to that point in Hebrews 13. So what is left of it? Aaron and his sons are to eat. It shall be eaten as unleavened cakes in a holy place. They're to eat of it in the court of the tent of meeting. Get down to verses 25 and 26. There's additional offerings. There's other details. Verse 25 says, Speak to Aaron and to his son, saying, This is the law of the sin offering. In the place where the burnt offering is slain, the sin offering shall be slain. Before the Lord it is most holy. The priest who offers it for sin shall eat it. It shall be eaten in a holy place in the court of the tent of meeting. Again, in a holy place in the court of of the tent of meeting. Keep that in mind. Like I say, next week we're going to go outside the camp because Jesus went outside the camp. The Melchizedek priesthood has a, has a significant distinction from the Levitical priesthood in this, in this regard. Down to Leviticus 10. Verses 12 and 13. Yeah. Admonitions there in 8 through 11 against, you don't want drunk priests. (laughs) All right. Then Moses spoke to Aaron and to his surviving sons, Eleazar and Ithamar. These are the surviving sons. Remember what happened to the other sons? Nadab and Abihu? Yeah. See, Aaron used to be the father of four. Now he's the father of two. There's a Father's Day message for you. All right. But Aaron spoke, uh, Moses spoke to Aaron and to his surviving sons, Eleazar and Ithamar, take the grain offering that is left over from the Lord's offerings by fire and eat, eat it unleavened beside the altar, for it is most holy. You shall eat it, moreover, in a holy place, because it is your due and your son's due out of the Lord's offerings by fire, for thus I have been commanded. If you think about it, this is... Uh, this is Makes sense. You want your Levites being Levites. You want your priests being priests. Uh, they're not uh, working their own fields. They're not baking their own bread. They're not, uh, you know, this is a, the principle is that they're being set apart to serve the nation of Israel spiritually. And so, you know, we want to keep them fed, keep them alive so they can continue to do that. It's a principle that's brought into the New Testament. 1 Corinthians 9, 1 Corinthians 10. Great uh, messages for... Um, making sure the congregation pays their pastor, which this congregation does very well. Paul talks about this. Back up a little bit. Do only Barnabas and I not have a right to refrain from working? 
Who at any time serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard, does not eat the fruit of it? Or who tends a flock, does not use the milk of the flock? I mean, who does that? That's nonsensical. I'm not speaking these things according to human judgment, am I? Or does not the law also say these things? And here's where he's going to adapt these principles for the church age. For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle the ox while he's threshing. God is not concerned about oxen, is he? Or is he speaking for our sake? Yes, for our sake it was written. Because the plowman ought to plow in hope and the thresher to thresh in hope of sharing the crops. If we sowed spiritual things and use it too much, if we reap material things from you. And this is what it's about. Down to verse 13. Do you not know that those who perform sacred services eat the food of the temple and those who attend regularly to the altar have their share from the altar? That's how they eat. Maybe it's a good thing that Israel was full of such sinners. <laughs> you know, the Jews were bringing a lot of sacrifices in and their, their priesthood was, was, uh, was well fed at that point. Those who attend regularly to the altar have their share from the altar. So also the Lord directed those who proclaim the gospel to get their living from the gospel. And for this congregation, it happened in 1999. And I've been so thankful ever since. Because for the first four years, I had to work both, an outside job and this job. And then uh, the treasurer came and said, what do we got to pay you to get you away from that other job? Great question. (laughs) All right. And uh, left there and never looked back. What a joy. Also chapter 10 and verse 18. Now I get it. We live in the intensified stage of the angelic conflict and it's quite likely that uh, what the Lord has provided here in Austin Bible Church is the exception these days. That uh, our nation grows darker and darker and churches and pastors are going to be struggling. We get that. Look at the nation Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices sharers in the altar? Partakers in the altar? And this is a useful term because it reply, it connects to the term altar that we have in, in Hebrews 13. We have an altar. And so it's, it's eating. It's like a table, but it's an altar. And it's a sacrifice towards God, but it's food towards us. We see how this works. So, are not those who eat the sacrifices sharers in the altar? He's going to go on to say, look at the table we are sharers in. And uh, particularly in communion, as we partake of the bread and drink of the cup, in our ritual of communion, we don't want to be mixing that with demonism. Likewise, uh, in anything, in any spiritual endeavor. Okay, And I want us to be thinking beyond communion. That uh, there's, a, there's bigger issues involved than just communion. We have a table and we should be eating from that table all day, every day. In, this, in the spiritual food that we have in the church age. In the reality that we have in our Melchizedek priesthood before the Father. Hopefully some of that will come out as well. Because we have these great privileges. Under grace... Priestly service provides even greater table privileges. Under grace, the priesthood we have in the church age gives us table privileges far beyond anything that the Levitical priesthood could even dream about. 
under grace. Priestly service provides even greater table privileges. And so, yes, we're going to look at uh, verses 16 through 21 here in 1 Corinthians 10 and see the larger connection there. We're also going to see what Jesus was telling that woman about in, or his disciples about in John 4. Because he was trying to tell them, I've got food you guys know nothing about. They'd gone into the city to buy food. And they came back and tried to give them the food they, they obtained. And he was full. Because <laughs> he, uh, he was having ministry with that woman. And there's about to be a huge revival there in Samaria. And then our uh, feasting in Revelation chapter 3. So can I do this? And Yeah, I can do this. We've got time. Let's do this. I've got to shrink this down a little bit so I don't block the screen. There we go. So 1 Corinthians 10, we've been talking about this already because verse 18 was on the previous point. But um, he says, I speak to wise men, you judge what I say. In other words, if you're a New Testament believer priest with doctrine, you ought to be able to have a discernment to make your own application here. Is not the cup of blessing which we bless a sharing in the blood of Christ? You know, when we drink the cup and we proclaim his death until he comes, are we not sharers? Are we partakers? Are we identified with the person and work of Jesus Christ? Of course we are. Same thing with the bread which we break, a sharing of the body of Christ. There's an identification there. Now this is the communion service here in this chapter. Since there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. We have a unity in the church age that includes all of us. It's not just that there's some of us are priests and Levites and the rest of the hoi polloi are out there in the courtyard, or even worse, the Gentiles are way out there, you know, beyond, beyond. We are all together in Christ. And this is our, uh, our blessing here. All right, so don't partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. The cup of the Lord, the cup of demons. Okay, so there is a table reality as it applies to communion, but it's not the only table reality we have in the church age. John chapter 4, verses 32 and 34. <laughs> the disciples come back, they say, Rabbi, eat. And who knows what they found in there and who knows what they paid for it. If you understand the, the, uh, the antagonism between Jews and Samaritans, they probably paid five times the going rate for any loaf of bread just because they were Jewish. But they got the food they needed, they brought it back. And they said, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples were saying to one another, no one brought him anything to eat, did he? <laughs> You can, they, all, all, they were all suspicious one of another because they all thought about it. <laughs> they thought, now how can I sneak out there early without somebody seeing me and get Jesus some early food here? They all wanted to. Nobody did. But he said, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. So here's a table that we partake, doing the will of God in the church age fully aware of the day and age in which we live. Do you not say there are yet four months and then comes the harvest? Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look on the fields that they are white for the harvest. This is the context for this. We need to be about our Father's business. We need to be doing the will of God the Father. And as we do, we are eating this marvelous food 
the table that has been prepared before us in the presence of our enemies. All right? Did I hear something? Are we good? Oh, yeah, I'll keep going. Sometimes I think my hearing aids malfunction and I wonder. Revelation chapter 3. Now, how many times have you looked at these verses and the pastor who knows what he's talking about corrects you and says, this is not an evangelism passage. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. Is not an evangelism passage. And if you've heard that a hundred times, great. I'm glad you've heard it a hundred times. But if you've heard that a hundred times, does the, does the preacher go on to tell you what kind of a passage it actually is? If it's not an evangelism passage, what kind of passage is it? It's a fellowship passage. It's a table feasting passage. And it's a table that we eat at that those tabernacle worshipers have no right to eat at. This is really the, uh, the flip side to Hebrews 13.10. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and will dine with him and he with me. He who overcomes, and notice, this should be all of us in the church age. I will grant to him to sit down with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. Positionally, we are. Ephesians says so. Ephesians 2 says we're seated at the right hand of Jesus Christ even as he's seated at the right hand of the Father. Revelation says this is for the overcomer. And the reason why we're sitting so close at Jesus' right hand, so we can feast all the better. I will come into him, I will dine with him, and he with me. All right? So now you've got things to chew on. You've been taught, now we can feast. We can chew on the Word of God together. Father, I thank You for this morning. I thank You for truth. I thank You for the table that we partake at. Father, You are so faithful. We give You the praise and the glory. Help us to understand these things as well as the appropriate applications of doing good. I think there's a lot of people wrapped up in doing good and they're actually not doing any good at all. And then there's so many invisible heroes and they are doing good because they're doing it in the filling of the Holy Spirit for the glory of Jesus Christ and the will of God the Father. And they are doing what's in secret and he who sees in secret is repaying. Father, it's a marvelous thing to be a church-age saint. I pray for your, uh, just for your hand of blessing as we continue on in this marvelous chapter, bringing the book to a close. Thank you for your faithfulness, Father. I thank you and I praise you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, we will dismiss with our closing hymn. We have a brand new hymn of the month.